Hello, everyone. It is 6.19 p.m. Eastern Time on February the 19th, and we are going to be recording with Chris Seifert tonight. And Chris will introduce himself here in a second and give you his background, but I have to have to thank Chris before we get started with that, because as I've stated numerous times, I did not set out to start a podcast. That was not my intent. Uh, early on, I was asking questions that I was phrasing, stop and think. And we'll put it out and was trying to solicit some response and get some, get some uh, conversation going. And one of the first ones I put out was about this whole nonsense about don't tell them it's been a gunshot wound at a shooting range. Right. If they haven't had 911, they know you're at a shooting range. Uh, and they're going to ask you what kind of injury the person has. You're going to have to say that. And so I put out a little short video clip on that, just basically asking some questions. And Chris said a great response to that. I was like, this is fantastic. Would you do this on video? And he sent me one and we did an intro and put it out. Um, those things are what grew into the podcast. So Chris was part of the very, very uh, early stages of what has become this nonsense. And Chris, thank you for that. Yes, sir. Sorry to uh, sorry to have saddled you with so much work and responsibility. <laughs> work, I don't mind. I'm, I'm getting anti-responsible the longer uh, I stick around. Yes, sir. <laughs> so I have learned that uh, I much prefer being able to come and go as I please compared to being in charge. And I, I'm shunning every opportunity to be in charge that I can possibly shun and do away with. I feel you there. If you would introduce yourself, tell everybody about you. Yes, sir. So my name is Chris Seifert. Um, I work for a company called Citizens Fence Research, doing firearm self-fence training. And uh, as far as my background goes, I was born and raised in Texas. Uh, right out of high school, I joined the Army a year before 9-11, which uh, is, you know, depending on what you wanted to get out of the Army, was a good or a bad time. Um, the, I'm the master of bad timing. So 9-11 happened. I found myself in the 101st Airborne Division Air Assault uh in in afghanistan uh in the fall uh, winter of of uh, 01 came back in 02 i found my way over to fit special forces group as a support guy and then i spent the majority of the rest of my career eventually went to special forces assessment selection the qualification course and spent the majority of my career in u.s army special forces in the green beret and uh but on top of that, the thing that people forget is like, you know, I was a special operations guy, but every, every time I wasn't deployed and then my tires hit the speed bump on the way off post, I became just a private citizen, uh, you know, concealed carry and protect myself and my family. Mm -hmm. And so, so I've been, you know, carrying uh, a handgun both overseas and, and, and here in the U.S. Uh, basically my entire adult life. And I retired in the summer of 2020, um, came back home to Texas and joined Citizen Defense Research where I do training. I also do some uh, uh, work for another company where I do uh, security consulting and uh, executive protection type stuff. I also spend my free time substitute teaching my local uh, local uh, school district. And um, what I've tried to do since I retired was take the principles and concepts of special operations, not necessarily the specific techniques, tactics, and procedures. Um, I try to take those concepts and apply them to the civilian self-defense problem and help primarily armed citizens, private citizens, um, to protect themselves and loved ones. Yeah, I have forgotten about the substitute teaching thing. And yeah. Uh, I did that once upon a time when I was working my way through college. I would, every break, I worked as a substitute teacher because I was initially a middle grades education major. I was going to be a middle school teacher and mm -hmm. government happened and, and that didn't come to be. But uh, substitute teaching was very fun and very rewarding. 
Uh, yeah, I love it. I love it. It's 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 the least lucrative work that I do, and it's probably the one I enjoy the most. Uh, and I am actually working on my I'm working on finishing my bachelor's degree, get my teacher's certificate to eventually just be like a high school history teacher and ball coach when I get too old to try to show people what's what. There you go. I I coached a uh, a rec league football team at the same time that I was doing uh, doing substitute teaching. And I got to be in really tight with one of the local middle school principals and I would call or the guy who arranged the substitute teaching, I don't think he was a principal. And I would call him and say, Hey, Skipper, uh, I've got spring break next week. Can you get me some work? He says, I'll find somebody that needs a day off. I'll, I'll get you. He would get me somebody every day uh, for the whole time I would be on break. And one day I come in, he says, I got to put you in with the, uh, uh, the disciplinary mm-hmm. students one on I said, Okay, great. And I walk in, they have them all out in the mobile. You know, I walked in and half of my football team. All right. Okay. And uh, the uh, one other day they gave me the behavioral disorder students. Mm-hmm. And I found that they were the best behaved students in the class. I mean, in the whole yep. entire school. Yep. And I came back at the end of the day. And he's like, how did it go? I said, every time you can put me in that classroom, I want in that room. Those were my yep. favorite students the entire, of all of them I've had, I liked being in that room. Yep. All they wanted was a little attention. Yep, 100%. I don't, I, I like, so what's what's interesting, and this kind of goes, we'll, we'll get into this later, mm-hmm. but when it, when you get into the, um, the criminal assault paradigm and that kind of thing where, where criminals, you know, professional mm-hmm. criminals are typically very, very good at sizing people up in just a split second, figuring out like, yeah. that's the, that's the one I want, or that's not the one I want. Uh, young people are the same way. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't have any trouble with kids. I'll work with our, with our, uh, uh, we call sped kids, which, you know, mm-hmm. our, uh, you know, development de- neurodivergent kids or um, yeah, the disciplinary kids, because you can walk in a room and they can usually tell within five seconds, like I can steamroll this dude or I can't. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I think I've had to raise my voice maybe a dozen times in two years of doing this because yeah. they know. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so that, yeah, I have a ton of fun. I really enjoy it. All right. um, you mentioned special forces and you mentioned green beret. Mm-hmm. I think in general, the, the vast, by and large, the vast part of the general public just doesn't understand They know special forces is something tip of the spear. But there are a lot of different jobs in special forces. And could you kind of differentiate what the Green Berets do compared to what Delta Force does? And, and absolutely, absolutely. So um, back in, so um, within the U.S. military, I want to say um, the Rangers who are now special operations are probably the oldest um oldest active unit like they you know there's the, go all the way back to the revolutionary war and french and indian war but really world, world war ii was when the rangers really started special force started in 1950 uh i want to say 52 54 54 um and um and then naval special warfare which you know they, they were like naval frogmen and then they eventually became seals uh, but, but then in the in the 70s um, there was just much terrorism going on and they that's when they looked at like okay we need to form you know some professionalized special operations and i often have people ask me um you know who's better you know green beret or navy seal or delta force rangers whatever i'm like look man like is a screwdriver or a hammer better yeah. they're they're different tools for different mission sets and there's some overlap obviously um but by and large uh, so you've got uh, your jsoc units like you know what people colloquially call you know, like delta force uh and then uh you know deb Gruber, seal team six 
and they're primarily focused on, you know, counter-terror, hostage rescue type stuff, and, and that's why they were founded. You've got the Rangers, which are elite, elite, elite uh, infantry um, that are basically able to conduct both large-scale, like, airfield seizure stuff, and then they can also do surgical stuff as well. Um, then Naval Special Warfare uh, has a also kind of a direct action flavor for the most part. Um, you know, in other words, like going and hitting targets and that kind of thing um, with obviously a, a water, uh, you know, water base to it. And uh, they tend to historically over the course of the last, you know, their, their history, focus on maritime stuff. And then, so Green Berets, the, we're, we're the, uh, the Swiss army knife of, of military special operations. Uh, and I do want to say that, that according to the U.S., the U.S. military, there's one special forces. And that is U.S. Army Special Forces. Everybody else are called Special Operations Forces. Uh, so if you say Special Forces, you're technically actually talking about Green Berets. We tend to be um, our now. What we focus on more than other stuff is is uh, unconventional warfare and um, foreign internal defense or, or counterinsurgency. But basically, we work with and through Indigenous partners. For those that have seen the movie Twelve Strong with Chris Hemsworth, I have not seen it. I actually know the guy that his character is based on, who's great dude, not quite as buff or handsome. Um, <laughs> But like the, the, the 300 Green Berets they put on the ground to link up the Northern Alliance riding around on horseback, uh, helping the Northern Alliance topple the uh, Taliban government in 2001, those were, those were Green Berets. Their, their original mission, mission statement, when they infilled those, uh, in, infiltrated those three uh, initial ODAs in Afghanistan, you know what their mission was? Conduct special operations. Uh, because at that point, it was literally just get in there, figure it out figure out what these guys are about. You're going to link up these dudes, figure out if we can work with them or not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and next thing you know, literally within, you know, from October to December, took them about two months to, to basically take every, every major city in, uh, in, in Afghanistan. Now, obviously the occupation that went on for 20, 22 years after that was not super great right. um, or 21 years after that. But uh, at any rate, yeah, when, when the U S military wants uh has a nebulous problem they can't really understand and they're just like you know what let's put some green braids in there give them kind of left and right limits and uh, let them figure it out that's tends to be what we're good at so what that leads to is uh jack i don't say jack of all trades masters of none because i would say we're more than anything else masters of uh cultural awareness and working with and through the indigenous culture uh and, and that's what unconventional warfare is all about and irregular warfare but uh yeah by and large we're the guys that can do most everything pretty decently and a lot a lot of the other soft elements specialize in stuff and they're the best at that thing right so that's kind of the, the breakdown of special operations overall i don't think i forgot everybody uh they did they did create marsoc uh, over the last 20 years marine special operations and i'll call them the raiders uh they're fairly closely patterned actually o- over green berets and provide a similar similar capability uh-huh. am i correct in my understanding that you spent a green beret spent a lot of time training the locals. I used to talk about indigenous personnel, but part of that job is taking yep. them and training them to be a fighting force. Yep. Yeah. Versus so, actually going in direct contact with the enemy yourselves. Yeah. And that's and that's exactly it. Is that basically uh and this is this is rumor. I don't know this to be true, but it, it tracks. So after 2001, um yeah, there's all these generals sitting around in a briefing room with like Secretary of Defense at the time, and and uh, you know, they're like, well, it's going to take us about a year to get all our tanks and you know everything else, and you know, and basically by fall of 2020 or 2002, we should be able. And, and allegedly, there was literally just a Special Forces colonel sitting back in the corner, and they were like, you got any ideas? And it was, yeah, we'll put, you know, I can put ODAs on the ground in a couple of weeks, and our guys will train, advise, and call in airstrikes, and basically just help coordinate these these indigenous folks 
Um, rather, so basically what you've got is you've got Afghans doing an Afghans work instead of having to bring in, you know, Marine or Army infantrymen mm-hmm. to do the job. And so, um, yeah, unconventional warfare is essentially uh, helping to coerce or disrupt or overthrow a hostile government or occupying power. So basically working with guerrillas we like against a government we don't like. What we do a lot more of and a lot more frequently is foreign internal defense, which is where we work with a government we like against either guerrillas or terrorists we don't like. So rather than having to send Americans to go into a Middle Eastern country and handle their terrorist problem, you know, we'll deploy for four months and work with a specific, you know, Jordanian or Lebanese or whatever military unit uh, and help them help themselves. And so, yeah, training, you know, I was an Arabic speaker. I was in the special forces group. Uh, so I, at one point in time, spoke Arabic pretty well. Now it's, it's fading fast, but uh, yeah, you know, I, so I might be given a mortar class or a medical class or a, um, an anti-armor or machine gun class in, uh, in Arabic to the, our indigenous partners and, and getting them straight so that they can go out and do stuff. We didn't have to ask our, you know, American teenagers and 20 somethings to do it, uh, do it for them. Yeah. Well, lots of mamas and daddies appreciate that. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I got to meet and work with a whole lot of interesting people, get exposed to a lot of, a lot of interesting cultures and whatnot. I'm glad to be retired though. I will say that. Yeah. Uh, I saw something on your LinkedIn bio that uh, I love the way it was phrased, that you were skilled in this assessment of ambiguous problems. Yeah. Um, so the one of the one of the biggest challenges, and I, and I don't think I'm telling anybody watching uh, anything they don't know, where our failures over this last 20 plus years, um, you know, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, you know, the areas where we've not done as well, um, have typically been a failure to understand the problem. Um, is that you could ask three different general officers, you know, what are we trying to accomplish in Afghanistan? And they couldn't give you a straight answer. And uh, interesting enough, I'm taking a college class currently on the on the uh, it's world history. It's it's the U.S. and Vietnam. It covers a 10 year, you know, 10 15 year period of the Indo Chinese wars and Vietnam and everything else. And so the problem was is that everybody thought they understood the problem and they didn't. Um, you know, I, I wrote a blog. It's actually the closest thing I've ever come to going viral. I wrote a blog the week after the withdrawal in Afghanistan in 2021. And uh, I pointed out the problem wasn't that we were in Afghanistan for 20 years and unsuccessful. The problem is we were in Afghanistan one year, 20 distinct times with no continuity of effort because you'd have a commander replace the old commander. And suddenly he's like, well, whatever they were doing the last year, that's stupid. We're going to do something totally different. And so we never got anywhere um, because we, we couldn't commit to an overall national strategy. And, and part of our job, and, you know, sometimes we effectively communicate it, sometimes we don't, is to um, figure out what those friction points are, figure out what those decisive points and decisive actions are. Um, you know, where, where, can I, where can I push and apply pressure to, to create the greatest effect? And that's something that, you know, we would do in both combat environments, non-combat environments. That's been a good chunk of my career working like in embassies and plain clothes and non-combat environments and stuff like that, where it's, okay, what is the problem with this country's military and like, why are they not able to handle this problem? And typically a lot of times it would be a, a Freakonomic style counterintuitive solution that, that wasn't anything what you'd think. So I got a whole lot of practice in figuring out like, okay, let's throw the, let's throw the rule book out. Let's throw the doctrine out. Let's look at this thing with fresh eyes and figure out um, what's the real problem we need to solve and what are some creative out of the box solutions to solve it. Yeah, I wrote a paper in college for a comparative politics class. And the crux of the paper was started out as I was comparing the Western migration 
of the English colonies across the North American continent to the migration from South Africa, started first by the Dutch and then later the the, the British across mm-hmm. uh, Africa, and that and it turned into uh, just an examination of colonialism. Yep. all together thrown in but with that same framework of comparing because they went across starting from south africa and going north in covered wagons and wagon trains just yep. like they started here in the east going yep. going to the west and dealing with tribal people yep and one of the differences is, is that here you know one country ultimately ended up in control from coast to coast of the entire continent between you know two different uh, lines on a map but what happened in Africa was you had multiple colonial powers seized different pieces of Africa, and then they drew lines on a map based on their preferences for geographic administration of these areas. Yep. So they would use like rivers or mountain ranges for boundaries, mm-hmm. not tribal boundaries. Yep. And they created countries that had never been countries before. And then as colonialism ceased to be popular back home yeah. and they would start pulling their troops out now they've left behind these governments and they would establish like a british style parliament in an area that would be two-thirds of one tribe and one-third of mm-hmm. another tribe but then that tribe that was one-third was dominant in another geographic yeah. area instead of drawing like the squiggly line around this tribe and a squiggly line mm-hmm. around this tribe and a squiggly line around that they tried to put western countries in on these people And it just it just has not worked. And if you look at the Middle East, all right, that's Iraq in a nutshell. Yep. Yeah, hundred percent. It's three different tribes lumped into a a British drawn border. Yep. And we still have not asked the right question. How do we get peace in this area? Okay, we go change this line and put all the Sunnis in here over here. Now I realize it makes Iran stronger, but we put all the Sunnis over here and they quit fighting. We put all the you know the Shiites over here with them and then all right, we're going to put all these Kurds up in the north. We'll create a special spot for them. Yeah, it's well, and the, and the problem is is is, is that, um, and this goes back to something we were talking about just before we went on, um, is that it's so important to get it right, whatever the problem is, to get it right initially, because again, yeah. post post World War One, when they just start to get drawn lines in the Middle East. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and then after a hundred years, there's no appetite. Like Afghanistan's a prime example. Like, yeah. uh, you know, most southern Afghanistan's Pashtun, and and uh, you know, uh, Pakistan is overwhelmingly Pashtun. Therefore, it would make sense just like cut, you know, cut off southern Afghanistan, making part of, of Pakistan. And then it gets even sillier up north, where it's like the Uzbeks, let's make them part of Uzbekistan. The Tajiks, let's make them part of Tajikistan. The Afghanistan's problem is, is that there's no uh, shared yeah. values or sense of national identity. There's just not. Right. And yeah. so, uh, so, but once you get into like, you've basically been repeating this, the same silly mistakes for a hundred years, it gets hard to go back and fix it, which is why yeah. really taking a tactical pause before you start making those decisions initially and getting them right. Um, yeah. yeah, pretty big deal. Yeah, well, India and Pakistan. There wasn't yeah. an India and Pakistan until Britain drew the lines on the map. Yeah. And yeah. it creates problems that the rest of us have to deal with for, for generations after that. Yeah, and there's there's I mean there's there's can I don't say conspiracy theorists, not really conspiracy yeah. theorists, but there's one one telling of history is that all those stupidly drawn lines were done on purpose in order to keep the people weak and make it easier to subjugate mm-hmm. them. But I'm a big fan of the, of the principle of what's called Hanlon's razor. Yeah. 
a lot of people know Occam's razor, but Hanlon's razor says essentially, uh, don't never attribute to malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity or incompetence. And like, yeah, yeah, maybe they were Machiavellian geniuses who were creating these weak states, or maybe they just didn't know what they were doing. And I know which one I, I believe is true. Um, so uh, I, I would tend towards the latter there myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so which leads us to our, our discussion for tonight, and that's asking the right questions. And what prompted me to reach out to you for tonight, we previously talked about doing episodes, just getting schedules to cross. Yep. Uh, there was a discussion online about some irrelevant awards. We're not even going to mm -hmm. discuss the awards themselves uh, out there, but there was a category of best firearms instructor. Right. What does that and, mean? Yeah, and you asked a great question in response to that. And I got to tell you, what strikes me is more a sign of brilliant thinking is not necessarily being able to give the right answer. It's being able to ask the right question. And you and John Holston are like my two favorite world champs at doing that. And you. you and you ask a question that I thought was just brilliant. And it's, which is the better instructor? the guy that takes someone with a 1.5 draw and tweaks him down to a one second draw or the guy or gal that takes someone with a five to six second draw and gets them down to sub two seconds, mm -hmm. which one has done the better job? Yeah. Yeah. I, I throw it back to you to elaborate. Yeah. I mean, so, and that's kind of the thing is, is that a saying that probably, and this goes back to our original way back when, when, you know, you were doing the whole, you know, Hey, you got, you're going to eventually have to tell somebody they got shot. You know, if there's a training accident at the range, right. Mm -hmm. Is that people, um, and I'm going to say this right now. And I, and it's, and it's an intentionally inflammatory statement, but I include mm -hmm. myself in this. It's about the whole human race. Um, one of the most absolutely certain planning factors you can count on when making any plans in life is human laziness. Human beings take the path of least resistance almost always, whatever it may be. And, I, and I've probably told this story on somewhere on the internet before, but I was many years ago, probably 10 years ago, we had a, we had a guy in Fifth Special Forces group who was um, a really, really, really good sniper. Now, I will say this too. So people always ask me, like, are you a sniper? And I'm like, look, man, but I, I, there was a period of time there where most of the guys on my team were sniper qualified. Like in, in my world, being a sniper wasn't necessarily a full-time job. It was everybody had the skill. And if, if we needed a sniper for this mission, we'd be like, you know, Hey, hey, Jimbo, grab the, the sniper rifle and spotting scope, and you're going to be over here. So, but but there was a, one particular guy who was a sniper instructor at our local schoolhouse. He was really, really good, and uh, like like you know, he'd go out on weekends and be like uh, using the wind to bend bullets around buildings, hit blind targets just for fun, and like stuff you'd never do in real life. But he was really sharp. Well, he goes over to uh, he goes over to Israel on a you know exchange program, and he goes to like I don't know one of their premier sniper schools, and they're all they're all telling him about how and and, and uh, about how good their snipers are. And so they take him out and let him sit in on a, uh, on a stalk and a stalk being where like, you know, they're wearing ghillie suits and they've got to crawl up and they got to fire a blank round. And then you, uh, you know, try to find them in this net. So, and they were basically telling him ahead of time, you're not going to find any never guys. He says, okay, cool. So he gets up on glass on a spot and scope in the back of the truck. And I mean, just one after another, boom, they all go down. He spots every one of them. And, uh, and so he, uh, they were like, how did you do that? He says, well, People are lazy. I don't look for people. I look for the easiest path for somebody to crawl on their face and on their belly and on their, you know, like the, 
and then I, you know, I look at the thorns and the thorn bushes and everything else. And I look at the low ground behind it. I know which way I'm going. If I'm crawling on my face inches at a time, you can count on mm-hmm. human laziness. And so, um, and so we like to revert to platitudes and accept and adopt platitudes without ever thinking about them. that the principle behind don't just call a gun range and say, Hey, somebody has been shot is a solid principle. But as it just gets distilled down into a single sentence maxim and gets passed on and people aren't engaging in the cognitive thought behind the concept, it's meaningless. Same thing with like, you know, what, what is the best instructor? Well, we, we got to think about that. And, and so another platitude that's very common that I hear a lot um, is mission drives the gear train. And, you know, you hear a lot of that's a very catchy thing to say because some cool guys said it. Mission drives the gear train. In other words, what the best gear is depends on the mission, which is very true. But that, that translates to a lot more than gear. Because if you're trying to assess like who's the best firearms instructor, you've got to assess their performance against what their mission is. And I think we could all agree that there's a that there's a uh, a broad spectrum of kind of categories of instructors. You know, there's there's guys like Ben Stager who are like it's purely technical shooting, uh-huh. and that's important. And then you've got guys at the other end of the spectrum, uh, guys like you know if you're if you're trying to get your daughter first shot down a sub one like Craig Douglas and and his his coursework is probably not the you know his is on the other end of the spectrum of like real world decision making contextual um thinking with a gun in your hand thinking about whether or not you should have a gun in your hand you know you've got people who's made it their mission to train people who bought a gun six months ago and like that's their target audience uh you know i mean it just at citizen defense research we've got I mean, we've grown a lot over the last couple of years but you know melody melody lauer and john johnson founded it and then i joined him and now we've got uh, uh ka clark uh, who's pretty pretty good shooter himself, uh, Ross Hick and uh, uh, Caleb Giddings. Now, John Johnson's a better technical shooter than me. K.A. Clark is a better technical shooter than me. So like within our catalog of courses, like John's got the test and standards technical shooting course and he's the guy you should go see. Uh, you know, I just debuted on the other hand, I've got a home defense course um, that is basically moving and dealing with rooms and structures with a gun in your hand inside your home. Um, and then I've got a force on force class that is, again, making decisions like trying to interpret the situation and decide if you need a gun uh, and whether you should get it out and everything else. And, and that being said, uh, I'm not a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu brown or black belt, you know, like guys like uh, the Shivworks Collective dudes. So I don't touch on any of that because I wouldn't be qualified to do so. So saying who's better, like, what does that even yeah. mean? It's who's better within their, like, I don't think you could reasonably have a best instructor award. I think you would right. need to have a best instructor of fundamental or foundational classes okay. best, you know, cause, cause Gabe White's, you know, Gabe White's pistol, uh, you know, uh, pistol shooting performance or mm-hmm. pistol shooting solutions is a much different class than like the one down here at my local gun shop. They run for people to get their license to carry and both could be equally excellent for the desired end state you're looking for. Well, I guess you kind of look at what we just talked about as far as like the split up in special operations, special forces. Yeah. All right. If Delta guys, if their trainers are only training other Delta guys who are the tip mm-hmm. of the spear, and if this guy isn't cutting it, you bounce him back to big army mm-hmm. versus the Green Beret guy that's dropped in country somewhere that is training <laughs> indigenous personnel. Yep. He didn't get to pick his kickball team. He's got to yep. play with the players that, that all got off the bus. Mm-hmm. And that's different skill sets there. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's interesting because I think something that a lot of uh, a lot of special operations trainers have, I don't know if struggle is the right word, but something that I've just seen and observed uh, 
and and I I was fortunate enough to have I guess just learned from from others, um, but like one of the big things that, that that I've seen is like the way that I run my my team range my ODA range when it's me and a bunch of special forces guys who've been together for three to five years on the team and um, from a, from the perspective of safety and how the line works and how the range works uh-huh. like I can't take that and take that model and apply it to an open enrollment course with a bunch of random people that I met, you know, on Saturday morning and like, all right, guys, like, uh, you know, we're all going to zero just whenever you've zero, just go down and check your targets. We got three meters of space between targets. So I'm sure it'll be fine. Like you can't do that kind of thing. Right. Right. And, and so, uh, it's, and, and like you said, the, within the special operations community, a lot of our failures, a lot of times, uh, under like the SOCOM or umbrella writ large, a lot of our failures are, the generals, the you know, the policymakers being intellectually lazy and just saying, we need some of those soft dudes and just pointing at random soft unit who happens to be in the area and sending them to yeah. go do a thing that they're not really best suited for. And then it doesn't go well. And usually a movie will get made about it or something because the guys <laughs> ended up ended up having to be really heroic because yeah. of a bunch of because like um, I'll, I'll give you another example of, of intellectual laziness that that kind of uh, uh, applies here is is uh, my, I spent my last three years as an instructor of uh, um, an advanced skills course at our special warfare center, and all of my students were qualified Green Berets, Navy SEALs, and Marine Raiders. That being said, it was a very unique course uh, in that it was a course you know focusing largely on how to plan um, plan operations in ambiguous environments, and ha- and there was a lot of there was a big social component to it. Where basically you got to like win hearts and minds and be able to like work with people and like you might be the point man for for talking to these locals and getting their buy-in on whatever we're trying to do in the area and so um we needed a guy to meet a certain threshold chris you're frozen up And I think we're back. Okay, so sorry about that. Um, so yeah, basically, um, in general, a dude can be a good Green Beret or a good Navy SEAL, but he temperamentally makes a better assaulter or a better sniper or a better whatever. So you can send a guy who's a good performer, but if you send him, if you if you don't manage the talent as a leader, you can send a guy to the wrong course and he's not going to do well and he's going to fail. And then of course the, the entire unit, all the leadership's going to be like, man, what a what a POS, right? That guy sucks. But honestly, you step back and look at it, you're like, no, man, like that guy wasn't, you know, yeah. you were being lazy and you just sent a body to a school instead of sending the right guy. And, yeah. and I encountered that a lot as an instructor where I would have, um, you know, I would have students show up who were super socially awkward, um, very uncharismatic. And like, they might've been great assaulters, but if they're the ones who are supposed to like put on a suit and walk into a meeting with like some, uh, you know, some important dude from the, you know, from the yeah. Saudi, uh, you know, Saudi government or whatever, he was not going to do well. And then he would struggle and then he would fail that, that yeah. but the, the Sergeant major literally just stuck his head out his office door on a Friday afternoon and was like, Hey, Smith, do you have such and such school yet? All right, you're going. And that was as much thought it went into. Yeah. So we really got to ask ourselves if we're, if we're, um, if we're using our skills and the skills around us, uh, you know, whatever the context may be, if we're using, um, if we're working smarter or if we're just working harder and just, you yeah. know, kind of flippantly forcing things. 
yeah, on the on the cop side of things, you know, you'll see sometimes like you have an opening in your your detective unit or your investor, whichever you, you phrase it as. I think we're frozen up again. Okay. And we're back again. You know, on the cop side of things, uh, we'll see like an opening pop up in investigations or detectives unit, whatever your agency calls it. And typically, you know, you look around, okay, who's a good patrol guy? Because that patrol guy has been good at going from call to call to call and handling problems. And then when you put them in an investigations unit that is pretty well self-supervising and they have to prioritize when they're going to do what on what case, sometimes the best patrol guy was not the best guy to be in investigations. And so then it becomes, is it discipline to put that guy back in patrol or to put him back where he's... Uh, where he was a better fit and you have to walk that time you know that that transition carefully so that they realize that we're not disciplining we're just putting someone back where they could be good yep. but at the same time it becomes common in law enforcement agencies that when they want to discipline say someone who's in investigations or discipline someone's in patrol they bust them to from detectives back to patrol or from patrol into the jail or in the dispatch or something like mm -hmm. that and that used to drive me nuts because you're telling all those people to do that job that now their job is in itself punishment yep so if if and if you're okay with it and, and sure. I, i'll be the first to tell anybody that like yeah. not never served as a peace officer i, yeah. I seriously contemplated when i retired and for a couple of different reasons, ended up like not to, but I've, I've been fortunate to get to know you and Chuck Haggard and a bunch of Greg Elifritz, a bunch of other guys that I trust and I trust their judgment. And, and I think there's a couple of really great examples um, yeah. of uh, like in the, in the law enforcement community that make more sense to people because they see cops every day and they're aware of these issues. And I think you just touched on, on one. So there was a, um, there's a book and I'll plug this book. I don't know mm -hmm. the guy, never met him, but it's called uh, the mission, the men and me by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pete Labor retired. And he was actually a, a Delta Force uh, commander uh, who wrote a book about his, uh, his experience as a uh, commander in the early years of Afghanistan. Um, but he, he imparts a bunch of practical lessons learned. And one of his principles in the book is, how would we organize if we didn't know how we were supposed to organize? Because, you know, that's the, the way we've always done it doesn't make it right. right. And so I don't remember who it was, which, which legendary lawman that I'm fortunate to call a friend said it, but they brought up the point that like um, the way policing is structured in terms of like everybody starts on patrol and then you eventually get promoted into like the detective bureau, investigations, whatever else. Um, for a, from a lifestyle perspective, that makes the most sense because patrol, you're working nights, you're working holidays, you're working weekends and you want, basically you want to get promoted out of that and, you know, get yeah. your kind of Monday through Friday or, or whatever, right? Your routine schedule. Um, but the reality is, is that like an investigator has some time to make decisions. And so somebody proposed the idea, like what if, if we were to start from scratch, when an alien came down today to earth and was like, I'm gonna organize the police department. Um, it's the patrol officers that are making the split second decisions that you know, cause riots, nationwide riots, mm -hmm. you know, millions of dollars. Um, and it's, you know, and, and whereas the investigators certainly have a very important job, but there's typically not that immediate shootout level time pressure. What if everybody started in an investigative bureau of, you know, whether it be you know, vice yeah. or auto theft, and then you eventually got promoted to patrol where patrol was your most experienced dudes with the best judgment who were least likely to do something idiotic. Um, and that blew my mind. Cause I know it'll never happen. And I know why it'll never happen because yeah. nobody wants to spend 10 years as a cop and then have to go fight drunks on the side of the road, uh, you know, at a truck stop on Thanksgiving night or whatever. But, but yeah. that was just a really, really, really good example to me of like, 
you know, counterintuitive solutions where it's like the way we do it makes sense for quality of life and retention of police and stuff. But I don't know necessarily it makes the most sense for taking the 22 year old college grad and throwing him out there fighting tweakers on the highway. Um, and, uh, and the other one was of course the, um, and I think it was Chuck Haggard that told me this one. Uh, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on both, but he, he talked about how administrators within agencies don't know the right questions to ask. They want less excessive use of, uh, you know, use of force complaints. They want less shootings. They want less all that. So they see the 10-year Marine combat veteran with sleeve tattoos, and they say, no, we don't want this guy. He looks aggressive and scary. So instead, they hire Officer Smiley, who's never been punched in the face in their life. But counterintuitively, Officer Smiley is more likely to underreact, get, get put in a bad spot, and end up having to smoke somebody when Officer Sleeve Tattoo basically would have handled it you know, at a much lower level of force earlier on, much like substitute teachers, you know, certain cops are going to walk into the room and have that presence and people, and, you know, and the perps know, like, you know, suspects know, like, nope, this ain't the dude to try to fight. Um, so counterintuitively by trying to hire less rough around the edges, dude, dudes and gals, we've counterintuitively, you know, in a lot of agencies created a police force yeah. with people that are less intimidating and are more likely to have to go from zero to 60 real quick. Yeah, you know, I often say that we, we graduate from the police academy and we don't know anything about the job, but what we, the book learning we got in the academy. And they put us out on the street and that is the core mission of every law enforcement agency is to go out and perform that basic control fun function, responding to crimes in progress, et cetera. Go catch the bad guy. It's the right. job and it's in its simplest form. And then we spend the rest of our careers gaining experience that would actually help us do that job, but getting further away from that job. Mm -hmm. And so like, we ought to have an experienced guy in charge, but when you graduate from the academy, they ought to make you like a division commander or something like that. And mm -hmm. steadfastly demote you. And like at year 15, they ripped that last stripe off your arm. Congratulations, son. You made it. You got promoted to midnight shift. <laughs> because then you might actually know what you're doing when you go out yeah. there. On hey, but that's but that's the guy when I, you know, when I call 911, yeah. that's the guy I want showing up. The guy's got the life experience, yeah. the judgment. Um, and that's what blew my mind with like, so there was a, there was a particular agency. Um, uh, well, I mean, I don't. I'm not bad now that I respect him tremendously, but, but I was looking at Texas DPS and I talked to a couple of recruiters and I said, Hey, listen, I'm retiring specifically to spend more time with family and let my kids be around family. Um, I really, what is the possibility of me getting posted within two, two hours of Dallas Fort Worth as part of Texas DPS? Uh, and they said zero. You know, they're like, you're, you're going to, you're going to go where, where we want you to go to your first duty station. And that's going to be the border region. I said, well, okay, that's good. That's a deal breaker. You're telling me there's no exceptions, yeah. no waivers. I said, Nope. They said, just like the army. Well, interestingly enough, and, and I told him, I was like, look, I'm a you know, 40, 40 year old man at the time. I want to serve my, serve my you know, state, serve my community. Um, but that is a deal breaker to me for family considerations and whatnot. But when I joined the army, I had one guaranteed, I got the, you know, the college money, but my other guaranteed uh, incentive when I joined the army, you know what it was? Choice of duty station. So, so you've got a, you've got a law enforcement agency that's less flexible than the United States government, United States military. And I'm like, I, you know, I was like, well, I wish you luck. I hope whoever you get yeah. in that slot that I would have taken is yeah. top notch, but like, I really feel like you probably, uh, anyway, yeah. but, uh, but that's, but that's bureaucracy everywhere. That was my experience in the military. That's yeah. yeah. There's a saying amongst the more knowing cops, as far as use of force goes, 
is that enough force soon enough equals less force later. And how someone who handles their business can stop a situation from getting to a point in that uh, we, it ultimately deteriorates until deadly force. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part of that is uh, fear biters. Yeah. Is they're not capable of handling. And I've been in this situation myself. I'm not slamming other folks. Couldn't handle the situation physically. So they went to a gun rather than handling it physically. And, you know, if we're making conscious hiring to choices for less physical, less whatever, okay, then we'll have to accept, then that's going to be a more situations on the, on the back end. Yep. And, uh, you know, if we're not asking the right questions. Yeah. Well, so I, and I teach a, uh, I teach a, uh, like a day long seminar, eight, eight hours plus or minus. It's a presentation discussion called uh, maps, mental agility, preparation and planning skills. And it's literally just kind of a, before we worry about what kind of gun, how much capacity do you need? What's the best holster? All that crap that like, I've not, I, I've, I've seen John Hearn's graphic. I have not been able to take mm-hmm. John Hearn's class, but yeah. it's like the, the gear, you know, the, the gear question is this tiny mm-hmm. little thing. And, and there's so much else out there. And it's, and it's, yeah, what in terms of decision-making and everything else, uh, and I and I use you know the famous the the, the Dink Keller video uh, that every you know probably every every police academy in the country shows the Dink Keller video and I don't know what they teach as far as lessons learned but exactly that the right level of force or I would even say the right intervention at earlier um, that you know Dink Keller had a hundred pounds on that dude and if he yeah. slams a guy to the pavement earlier on and, and you know God yeah. God rest him but I tell people all the time like in in my force on force class I've got a about a third of the scenarios are you know, or, or no brainer, somebody's going to get shot. Then there's about a third of the scenarios where nobody should get shot. And then I've got that third middle ground, the ambiguous ones where you can get yourself to a good, good, righteous shooting, mm-hmm. but there was tons of off ramps that you passed. And, and, and I try to explain that to people about police shootings. And again, I'm not a peace officer and I try to be very careful about passing judgment, mm-hmm. but I, I've seen a number of shootings where I'm like, the moment that cop pressed the trigger, good shoot. But there was those off ramps back there, you know, five minutes yeah. ago that if he'd taken that off ramp, we wouldn't yeah. have got to this point. And right. so, um, so really thinking through and contingency planning um, and having mental maps for, for how things could go and training it for real, which is tough to do in a bureaucracy because as we yeah. were talking earlier, bureaucracies are just interested in checking the block. Yep. So it's a tough, tough problem. Well, that's a good segue into our, our next little bit here because all right, to a certain extent, a cop, is obligated to seek and confront the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And that is not the case necessarily for a private citizen. So it's asking the right questions. So what are the questions that a private citizen should be looking at in both preparedness and I guess selecting the people that are going to train them? Mm-hmm. So, uh, no, go ahead. Now just, you know, it's tempting to go say, I want to be trained by the guy who trained the heaviest hitter tip of the spear of the United States military. Right. Well, okay. Is that necessarily, does that necessarily equate yep. to what you need? You know, the hardest charging SWAT guy in the hardest to police city, city in the United States. Does that necessarily apply? Are mm-hmm. there things that translate? Yeah. But what's the better question? Well, you know, so I think, um, yeah, I'm going to definitely like picking your trainer. So first off, uh, and something I talk about in, in my, my maps class is what's your mission? And the, the beautiful thing about private citizens is 
there are some left and right limits that the law defines your mission. Like the law prescribes when you can and cannot use lethal force. Um, but even within that, those left and right limits, you can narrow that. Um, you know, that, that obviously the no brainer is, you know, one of my, part of my mission is to keep myself alive, you know, keep myself from being killed or, or grievously, seriously injured, whatever word you want to use. Um, but then, you know, in defense of third parties that can get murky. Right. Is, you know, I think anybody would agree that, yeah, you know, your wife, your kids, your family, your friends, you know, people that you, your, your loved ones, um, you know, if you're an armed citizen, I, I think it'd be perfectly reasonable to say, hey, I'm not going to let anybody who, whom I love and know, you know, suffer death or serious bodily injury. So that's part of my mission is protecting their lives. What about strangers? And in my force on force class, I run scenarios. Not, and it's not gotcha. It's just to get people to think like, um, get people to think about how intervening on behalf of third parties that you don't know and strangers can go right. Also think about how it can go wrong. And it's not, when, when we get into defensive unknown third parties, what I tell people personally in terms of defining your mission is that's a moral question. And, and what I mean by that is that, um, and, it's, and I, I would also say that if anybody tells you like the moral decision you should make on that, I would take that with a grain of salt because um, I am based on my life experience, my professional experience, knowing how I behave in actual you know, two-way gunfight and so forth. Um, I know pretty well how much risk I'm willing to uh, assume on myself. And, um, you know, I've, I, I would say that I trend more towards the interventionist side of things than a lot of other folks, um, that, if, that if I'm at a Walmart or I'm somewhere where there's an active shooter, um, I am more likely to probably say, hey, I'm going to go see if I can't help solve this problem. And I've got very specific plans trying to keep myself safe, keep, keep from getting shot by cops. Um, but I would say that like what works for me and what I've chosen is maybe not the best choice for I, more typical people. You know, somebody that bought a gun a year ago and has been training for a year. Um, but yeah, whether or not you're willing to go to prison for the rest of your life trying to defend a third party, whether you're not you're going to get sued into oblivion, uh, you know, killed or crippled, um, these are all moral questions you got to ask yourself. Uh, and then in terms of how to choose your trainers based off of that, I think a big thing is having a serious high degree of self-awareness about yourself. And I think this is something that we all, myself included, can, um, can screw up because uh, John Murphy uh, runs a runs a class um, that I've not been to, but everybody I know that's been to it who is a high level experienced shooter has said it is it is it is the class that basically once you take your license to carry and get licensed, like his his class should be the next class you take. Um, and so, if you just got your your license to carry three months ago, bought by your first handgun six months ago. Um, then maybe, you know, a Ben Stager or a Gabe White pistol shooting solutions class is not what you need right now. Doesn't mean you don't ever need it. Um, same, same thing where I say, I tell people all the time, like, look, if tactical fantasy camp, tactical LARPing camp, where you go hook up with some commando and you run around in a plate carrier, clearing buildings with three other people with, with AR-15s, um, if that's what you want to do, just understand, as long as it's safe, which sometimes those classes are not all, not always safe, but if it's safe, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But also understand that's not preparing you for your, what your defensive gun use encounter is going to look like, because you're not going to have three other people or a plate carrier or an AR-15. And now if you're doing that just to learn how to move in structures, 
fine, but you've also got to account for the fact that when you don't have people with you, moving in structures looks very different. That's where something like Craig Douglas's our movement structures might might be a little bit better. Um, and so, but I would say the big thing is that if you and I'm, you know, I know you're familiar with the, the Dunning-Kruger curve and the you know the Dunning-Kruger effect. My red flag when I'm listening to instructors that I don't know, whether they be former SWAT guys, former former soft guys, or whatever else, if if I sense that they are overly dogmatic and overly black and white in their thinking. That is personally a red flag for me. People that are a little too decisive and like, hey, what gun should I get? You should get a Glock 19. Well, there's a lot that goes into that. So the answer is almost always it depends. And then somebody who's an actual expert that can help you solve your problem for your lifestyle and your mission is going to be somebody who can say, well, it depends. Let me ask you some questions and help you know, spirit guide you to your right answer because it may not look the same as my right answer. And if an instructor yeah. does not do that and is otherwise just like, this is the way you do it. It's the way in capital letters. Eh, maybe not. Maybe not the best person to train with until you're much more experienced and much better able to ferret out nonsense from from the gospel truth. Yeah. Yeah. And I I know the answer for you is the what you carry, and I think it just just amuses me when you, I see all these people that are like, oh, you got to carry this gun and everything with all these gadgets and everything on it. So what does the special forces guy on the other end of the computer connection right now carry? Uh, well, so honestly, most 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 days these days, I'm either carrying um, a Ruger LCR 327 Federal Magnum loaded with five uh, uh, Buffalo Bore wad cutter 32 longs. And my sixth round, this is something I think I got from Chuck Haggard. Uh, my sixth round is a 32 H&R Magnum. It's just a little louder with a little more recoil. And that's my, hey, stupid, you're empty. Kind of like the ping on an M1 Garand. Um, and, and a speed strip in my pocket uh, for the extremely unlikely event that I end up needing to re reload a revolver in a gunfight. I do carry, but I also carry a Glock 48 uh, with a red dot on it. And when I'm going to environments that I believe pose an uh a heightened risk of mass shooter because it's just a target rich environment. Maybe it's a shopping mall. Maybe it's a, you know, Walmart places where unfortunately these days people walk in. I do have a compensated red dotted Glock 19 with a 20 round mag on it that I carry. But frankly, I carry that one pretty rarely. Um, and that's, that's when I think I might have to defend others more than defend myself. But if I'm going to pump gas and I'm going to like, you know, make a quick run for some errands and stuff, I'm typically carrying something surprisingly small. Um, for, for a number of reasons. Um, are, have you have you heard Caleb getting this whole thing? Have you seen his bell curve of like utility? So he, so Caleb's got this revolver utility curve that I think is pretty spot on. But he says for people that are just gonna buy a gun and uh, are gonna put it in the sock drawer in their house and just use it for home defense and never carry it outside the house, you know, revolvers are awesome. You load them, it's super easy to tell they're loaded or unloaded. Um, they, they deal with neglect. You can put, you can put one in a climate controlled environment for hundred years, pull it out, it'll still fire. Then as people begin to train and carry and are starting to do high round count classes, um, the utility, um, yeah, it's an inverted bell curve. The utility kind of goes down where you kind of want something a little bigger because it make no mistake. When I go to, a, if I'm going to a revolver class, my 32, you know, snubby is going to start to suck after the first, you know, three, 400 rounds. Um, but then as people become really, really skilled, uh, when people become really, really skilled and they know that they can look at somebody at a typical self-defense distance, you know, zero to zero to seven or maybe even zero to 15 yards and be like, I can hit that dude's aortic arch reliably under stress. Mm -hmm. And I know I can do that. Um, and yeah, 38 watt cutters out of a snubby or, or, you know, 327 works, works really well. 
And so my simplified version of that, frankly, is if you if your skills suck, it doesn't matter what you carry, so carry whatever. If you're decent, then gun choice and ammo choice does matter. Uh, it begins to matter because you can get good hits with this gun, but not necessarily with any other. So you need to get a gun you can shoot well enough. But then once you become a good enough shooter, um, you know, I'm not squaring off with, with, you know, somebody like now, granted, Gabe White's usually carrying like a, like Glock 34 and four spare mags, but, but you give, yeah. you can give him a 22 Der- Derringer and I'm not squaring off with Gabe. Right. Cause I know he's going to put 22 caliber holes <laughs> in these bits and yeah. I'm going to lay down and not want to play. Anymore. So, um, so gear, my gear changes based on my mission for that day. I'm walking out of the house, do this. And yeah, a lot of times I'm carrying either a snubby or a compact nine mil. And, you know, it just, it strikes me as like, you're looking at your life and you're asking the questions, what is my mission today? We'll go right back to what we were saying earlier. Uh, I carry a J frame or now it's an LCR in 32, by the way. Yep. Uh, In areas where I can't carry a gun. I call them my high headache places, the places where I'm legal to carry, but there's a higher risk of headache if I get discovered. Mm -hmm. And, but I'm also, when I'm in those places, I'm not there hunting bad guys. I'm not there whenever my reason for having the firearm with me at that point is if I can't get away, I've got to deal with the problem and I want the least discoverable firearm that I can shoot well enough to do the job. Yep. Yeah. So, and that's, that's one of the areas where I think, and this is, I was guilty of this too, is I'll, I'll totally own this is that, you know, when I, 10 years ago, I was always carrying always, I was carrying the 20 round mag, red dotted comp gun, yeah. you know, the, the, the offensive assault pistol or whatever you want to call it. And, and, and in my mind back then, you know, with two spare mags, and if you're not carrying that, you're not serious about self-defense, but I was coming at it from the framework of a special forces guy who's been in combat and has been worried about how much ammo he's carrying. Cause I'm in a, I'm in a sustained fight. Same thing with police officers. You know, when you're in uniform, if you draw your gun, generally speaking, somebody's going into handcuffs. You know, whether it takes no rounds or three magazines, you've got to sustain that fight until cuffs are on that guy or he's room temperature. Whereas if you look at all the empirical evidence of self, civilian self-defense shootings, um, you know, Wayne Dobbs has a great saying. I, t- I actually took a, I think, small revolver class from him at TACCOM, one of, your, uh, one of his blocks. And he said before, he said in, in your typical civilian self-defense, carjacking, gas pump robbery, you know, parking lot robbery, you're going to run out of time before you run out of ammo, uh-huh. um, is that either you're going to be dead, bad guy's going to be dead, bad guy's going to have run away, or you, you, you're you going to have run away, or all of those things, before you're going to you know, you know, run a ma- uh, slide lock, and yeah. then reload, and then continue running the slide lock. And, uh, and so it's one of those things where, especially for a lot of people who they've got their SIG P320 with the compensator and the red dot on it, the extended mags, but they don't ever carry it because it's such a pain in the butt to carry. I'm like, look, man, you'd be a lot better off with a J frame or a Glock 43 that you actually have on you because, you know, like all the work that Claude Werner and everybody else has done, it proves that just the presence of a handgun and skillful manipulation of it is enough to solve 99.9% of your civilian self-defense problem. Uh, I will throw out there because this is one of my taglines when I teach a snubby class or a wheel gun class is the problem does not change because of the gear you chose. So if you're rolling out with that five shot J frame, you still may run into a Glock 19 problem yep. and that, and that J frame's not going to handle it. Uh, but you know, you have to do some sort of assessment along the way as to what your parameters are and 
and everything. And of course, to a certain extent, I can say, I'm just not going to go to the places where I feel like I really need a gun. And I can do that and mitigate that a lot of the time. But last night I found myself in the mall of Georgia. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it is one of those things. Yeah. Well, and so, so interestingly enough, um, back in like 2020, I was selecting a, a home defense gun for my, uh, for my teenage kids when we left the house and, um, the thing that they shot the best and were the most reliable was a Ruger 10 22 with a red dot on top of it, a 25 round mag. And, and, and at the time I was still, I I was still kind of working through my transition to, you know, how much more important skill is than, than gear. But I was like, wait a minute. Okay. Out of all the home invaders that are going to come into my suburban home in Tacoma, Washington, how many of them are going to continue waiting up the stairs through, you know, 25 rounds of 22 LR being fired at them? Like that's yep. not, unless, unless the cartels have got a vendetta against me or like IRGC uh-huh. cuts force, you know, yeah. is, is taking revenge for something to do 10 years ago. And, and same, same thing where uh, Melody Lauer, who I know, you know, Melody, um, she made a post and it has been six months or a year ago now about her, her home defense gun, which is a, a, thir- a 1301, red 1301 shotgun. Yeah. And a gentleman made this comment. And it's funny because the day before I had I had uh, posted about my home defense long gun because I have multiple home defense guns based yeah. on scenario and location. But yeah. but I had a Ruger eight or a Ruger a Remington eight seventy uh, van comped out that nobody really said boo to me about mine. But then Melody, being a woman, you know, some guy comes along and tells you that it's not the optimal choice and this and that and the other. But he, the, the exact words were, shotguns can be devastating, but they can be overrun in a reloading situation. And I was like. Let's let's break this down for a second. Melody Lauer hanging out in Iowa in her suburban home or kind of ruralish home. Yeah. She's dumped seven, eight rounds of double lot bucks. She's got eight bodies piled up in her high hallway <laughs> or coming up the stairs. And you think that there's going to be dudes climbing over this mountain of bodies yeah. to keep on coming. Like, has anybody is any private citizen in America ever died because their shotgun ran dry in a gunfight? I would love if any if you're watching this and yeah. you've got evidence of somebody running their shotgun dry and dying in a gunfight who's a civilian. Yeah. I'd love to see it because I don't think that's a real thing. Yeah, and that's the same thing. Ammo exchanges that are common and taught commonly taught in shotgun classes. Okay, it doesn't happen in the real world. Yeah, it just doesn't happen. Um, all right, well, we'll move on to our next topic because I know this is is been one of your biggest frustrations. And that is this whole subject of the active killer or, you know, whichever terminology you want to use for the people that walk into places like the school yep. and just start shooting up the places. And I know because you're, you're substitute teaching, you're in the schools frequently. Yeah. And you've been trying to get the right questions to ask and have been running into some brick walls. Yeah. So the, one of the biggest problems, and this goes back to intellectual laziness yeah. is, is people individually tend to check the block when they get the opportunity to do so. But then when you put them into institutions where it's a collection of people, it gets way, way worse. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, a a colloquialism or a maxim that, that, you know, I've heard a bunch of times in my life is like, don't let um, perfect be the enemy of of good or or good enough or whatever, right? So in other words, you know, sometimes you've got to pick a good plan and move forward with it. But I think that the opposite is also true, where I think sometimes people will trick themselves or talk themselves, rationalize them into saying this is good enough without really thinking it through. And then they will, um, and so they'll let good enough be the enemy of better, which is 
Um, and so bureaucratic institutions in general, I think you see this in the military, you see this with cops, and I think you see it with schools too, with, with the active shooter, active killer type stuff is they look around, you know, a school district looks around, and I will say this, my, my school district is far ahead of, of most any other school districts I'm aware of, but that's almost an impediment, uh, specifically in that, like, if you're already, if you're already ahead of everybody else, then why continue to try to improve, right? I can just kind of kick back and coast and I'm, that's not my style. So I've been kind of yeah. irritated to some of the folks in, in decision-making positions, but, um, you know, for example, um, drills with the sheriff's, you know, the local sheriff's office, the local police department have become pretty common in lockdown drills and stuff like that. Um, and so had like you know, medical training where they're doing stop the bleed training for teachers. And that's a great thing. Um, and, and I just want to put this out because this has kind of become one of my crusading points is when you're dealing with mass casualty events, and I've, I've had the unfortunate, um, the unfortunate privilege of, of taking part in a few mass casualty events, whether it be shooter or bomber, um, the hard part isn't typically the application of a tourniquet or the application of a pressure dressing to an individual casualty. It's that, okay, the school's got this stop the bleed kit mounted on the wall, hopefully. Um, but it's got four tourniquets and four pressure dressings in it. And I've got a cafeteria full of kids, God forbid. You know, i got a pile of 40 or 50 bodies, some dead, some alive, some uninjured, some seriously injured. And if I just put a, tourn a tourniquet on the first four kids I come across, I'm out of tourniquets and I don't know if I allocated my resources appropriately. So really, like triage and mass casualty scene control before paramedics arrive, before... Uh, law enforcement arrives is something that's very very simple to teach um i mean it can literally be a powerpoint and then like a 15 minute walkthrough drill and even that would be the thing that like uh and i'll i'll free free cheese i'm trying to make money off of this um but like you know for my my routine was always in whatever target language you know in america it'll probably be english is i'm looking at a pile of injured people i'm like all right if you can hear my voice stand up and walk towards me. everybody that stands up and walks towards me you're going to go over here and sit in this corner. Frankly, I'm not worried about you. Um, you're, you know, the, the, those are the people that I know, even if they're hurt, if they can get up and walk towards me, I can put them on the back burner. And, uh, and so starting there, now I'm going to go out and find the people who could not get up and walk towards me that still have a pulse. And that's where I'm going to allocate my focus and my resources in terms of first aid. Um, but most schools from what I've seen will have the fire department out to give some individual first aid training to individual teachers and they call it good and they just skip that triage and scene management step. Yeah. And, uh, and then again, the same thing where like, even with the armed teacher programs, you know, I think there's probably uh, a, a wide degree of disparity between different school districts in terms of how well these teachers are being trained. Cause like having armed teachers, you and I both know, like, you know, there's, there's plenty of cops and plenty of soldiers that carry guns, can't hit the broad side of a barn, can't form under pressure. Yep. And so, um, on the flip side, you know, the motivation level of the teachers, because like I said, if, if a cop doesn't want to be a good shooter and just wants to pass the ball, that's all you're going to get out of them, right? Um, same thing with teachers that they're, you know, that if, if we don't educate um, administrators in understanding that um, just doing what everybody else is doing might keep you safe liability wise, but it's probably not the best answer. And there's tons of peace officers, military veterans, uh, and people in the know who want to help, uh, but we've got to let them help and actually listen to them. Yeah, it's been terribly frustrating for, for me to, to see that like people checking blocks and saying, oh, hey, yeah, we did our annual drill with the, with uh -huh. the sheriff's office. 
we did our annual drill with the, the firefighter paramedics. We're good. Like, well, are you, or have you thought through everything that could go wrong with your plan? We've done something though. We've, we've done something. So we feel good about ourselves. I'm sorry. You have to say it again. I had a malfunction with my, yeah. with my, but, uh, but when we do all that stuff, we've done something. So we should feel good about ourselves. Well, and, and that's, that's exactly it where, so I just wrote an article. I just wrote an article for, uh, uh, shooting illustrated and it was making the transition from from a gun owner to a armed citizen because a pet peeve of mine is something will happen and it could be on the local news local facebook page whatever it is you know somebody got robbed somewhere somebody got shot somewhere what you know somebody's catalytic converter got stolen and you'll have a bunch of people who don't know what they don't know and they just say well um you know th that's why i've got a gun and i'll be like you got your gun on you right now like well, well no where's your gun it's at home oh so you're not you're not really an armed citizen at all are you so they they buy a gun and they think of themselves as an armed citizen but they don't go through the like actual like you know risk mitigation process of like for my gun to be of any use to me and, and that's my big pet peeve with, like car carriers too folks that carry in like car holsters or glove box or console like next time you're pumping gas i want you to ask yourself if somebody stepped around the pump with a knife or a gun in hand is your gun in any way useful in your glove box at all? No, it's not. But you just haven't forced yourself because because people buy a gun and they're like, I did something. I bought a gun. I'm safe. But that's not the way it works. It's not a binary. It's not black and white. It's a nuanced process because I'll tell you right now, uh, in my life, as much thought as I put into it, I guarantee you there's, there's vulnerable spaces, mm -hmm. either temporally or geographically, that I'm missing. And I've got to constantly be evaluating. And I don't live my life you know, paranoid or anything like that. But you're right. It's so easy for people to just say, well, we, we did something. Yep. Like, and, uh, and, and that's, again, it goes back to the, just the human yeah. proclivity to take the path of least resistance. Yeah, and it's, the, the system of government we have here in the United States is the second worst system of government in the world. And second to everything else, because everything else is the worst system yep. in the world. But our system of government is designed to be fragmented and inefficient. That's the very design of our mm -hmm. of our system. And you know, anytime there's a big incident, you know, my phone would start ringing at the sheriff's office. And thank gosh, I'm not in that office to answer that phone anymore. Um, but people will be calling, demanding that the sheriff's office do X or do Y at the school system. And why aren't we doing this? Well, I hear you, ma'am, or I hear you, sir, but uh, we don't have the legal authority to make that decision. What do you mean you're the sheriffs? Well, yes, ma'am, that is correct. But according to our state law, the school board has the control over that decision. So instead of the people who have a background, maybe in facility security and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. we don't get to make those decisions. We have to implement the decisions that are made by the people who got elected to the school board. Yep. And they can yeah. be great, well-meaning people who have hearts of gold, and are great in their daily job as a businessman or, or, or whatever. But until they learn to understand and ask the right questions, they're not going to be making the right decisions. Yeah. So, and interestingly enough, one of the, you mentioned our political system and our just our general culture is just like anything, there's pluses and minuses, right? Mm -hmm. As you, you know, that, that, that it's, it's hard to do anything in our, in our, 
political system without overwhelming consensus, you know, and that was the founding fathers in their wisdom made it that way to make it harder to, you know, uh, to basically just make a more stable form of government. However, mm-hmm. um, you know, Jeff, Jeff Cooper often in his, uh, you know, in his um, writings would talk derisively about the age of the common man and how much we in America, we do tend to have culturally have this uh, antipathy towards the elite, the special, the exceptional, and culturally, we we all want to believe that like our opinion is just as valid as everybody else's opinion. So it's hard for people, and to include me, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm painting with a broad brush to include myself, but that school board member is probably a successful local businessman, great dad, got a great family, his school, you know, he's doing the school board, and he's got all these different things to worry about, and that cultural antipathy towards experts uh towards um you know people just being better than us at a specific thing Mm -hmm. makes it hard for folks to accept that like you know i'm great at all these other things so you know i'm sure i can figure this out when in reality and like that was my that was my big push for our school district and i got i got some traction where we do have a full-time guy now but i was like look there's there's too much involved in school security for the school board to be the sole you know meeting once a month you guys don't have mm-hmm. enough time and you got so much other stuff, the bond for the new football field and this, that, and the other, yeah. you got so much other stuff to worry about. You need to find the right guy and, you know, and put that guy in charge and let him make the decisions and back his decisions. And they, and they, they did that. And, uh, and it's, it's a step forward, yeah. but um, yeah, it's just at the end of the day, um, like you say, well-intentioned people who don't know yeah. what they don't know and are resistant to the idea that maybe they're missing a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. You know, I had a guy here at my house working on my air conditioner several years ago. And he goes to explain to me two alternative paths or, you know, making a decision about what we're going to do to fix this AC. And he says some terms that I don't understand or know. And he goes and he finally says, all right, well, what do you think? And I said, I think I hired you to come get my air conditioner working, do whatever's best to fix my air conditioner. And he says, well, what do I said, sir, sir. If I knew how to make this air conditioner work, you wouldn't be here. Yep. <laughs> so I'm yeah. going to, whatever you would do if this was your air conditioner unit, do it. Yeah. And fix it and get it running. And, you know, it's just this one of the school systems in my area, they created the position of full time school safety guy that was supposed to be dealing with this threat. And they made a big deal of telling the public about how they were taking the threat seriously and that they've hired a guy, this is going to be his pure focus. And they went out and hired a firefighter. Uh, and I'm not besmirching firefighters. Yeah. Everybody, everybody loves firefighter. But when was the yeah. last time we had a school burned down? Yeah. Now I know said, I don't know if there's anything else that's in his background that may have made him suitable for the right. job and everything else. But I'm like, I'm looking, okay, what threat are we trying to deal with here? Because, if I'm coming from a fire perspective, my thought process is completely different. I've told this story on the show before, but it fits here again. I have a cousin that is the sheriff of a county in Tennessee. And after one of the big national incidents, you know, that, that, that's caught the media, he went out and researched and found these things called uh, Barracuda door jam armor. And it was a yeah. way to lock down individual doors to classrooms so that 
you know, someone's in the school shooting up, they couldn't get into the individual classrooms. And he figured up how much it would cost for every door in the school system right. and everything. And goes, well, the Tennessee State Fire Marshal's office said, you do that, and I'm going to I want to come after you because that's a violation of the fire code. And he had to battle to the state legislature to get that address there. Mm-hmm. Okay. What is a, you know, all right. Well, we, it's important to keep schools from burning down. Yeah. But what's but the more many, immediate threat? You know, how, how many school kids in the last hundred years have died in school fires? I don't know of any. I think it's zero. Yeah. And, and so, um, so, and this really kind of, we're, we're, even though it seems like a different topic, we're hitting on the same theme, which mm-hmm. is um, specifically talent management and figuring out how to get the right people working the right problems. Because, uh, and it's funny because I thought of something when you were talking about your air conditioner guy story, and I'm, I'm with you too, where like, mm-hmm. um, you know, hey man, I, I don't, I don't know. What do you recommend? Uh, Although I think that, that something that's important, and this goes back to, I think this is true of like, uh, self-defenders hiring, you know, like paying specific trainers. Uh, so I mentioned I speak, you know, I was an Arabic speaker and uh, my Arabic was very good, generally within uh, specific areas that I got a lot of practice at. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, whenever, uh, you know, we might go into some like meeting with, you know, high level decision makers in some country or whatever. And I would bring a translator, like a dedicated, like this guy's a native Arabic speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, but really the benefit of my Arabic at that point, cause I could not follow like they did a super high level political discussion and stuff. It's normally, you know, pull this pin, load mm-hmm. the round, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so, but I could, I knew enough Arabic to be able to tell whether this expert was doing, you know, was doing yeah. his job correctly, whether he was actually yeah. translating what I was saying or adding his own spin. And so I think when it comes to, to, to use of experts, I think that like school board members need to educate themselves on the problem enough so that they can hire the right expert and spot check that expert without complete ignorance, you know, right. that, that I'm going to do enough Google searching on my air, house air conditioner problem to know I'm not getting totally mm-hmm. ripped off. Right. Um, so really, I think that the, the problem set when it comes to that kind of thing is, is educating yourself enough because how many, uh, and I don't, I don't as a rule call ever call out by name trainers, um, uh, you know, that are, uh, unless I see something just blatantly unsafe where yeah. I'm like, Hey, do not take this guy's class. Cause you're going to get shot. Uh, but in general, I don't do that. Um, but, uh, but I mean, but we, we both know and have seen people that mm-hmm. like, hang out a shingle and like, you know, safety is my big thing is that when I see like, if, if you're not making students any better and you're just ripping them off, but everything's safe mm-hmm. while you're doing it. Well, I don't like it, but I ain't going to say a word, but like, yeah, I think it's responsible on the, the individual or it's incumbent upon the individual to educate themselves enough to be able to like look at two firearms instructors yeah. and be like, okay, this guy right here seems like he's got it together. And this guy I'm not so sure about. Um, to pick the right experts to trust because you know everybody's an expert nowadays right, right. Um, yeah it's 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 a tough problem like I said you know that the, the firefighter thing was my my uh, my question to the decision makers in my local school district uh, was that I was like it was when I was specifically talking about the like triage of mass casualty events and I was like listen I've got all the respect in the world for my local sheriff's office. And I, and I mean that that's not applied to you. They're, they're actually, they have a fantastic reputation. Um, you know, the, the county, county fire and EMS, you know, do a great job, but out of both the sheriff's office and the uh, firefighter paramedics, 
how many of them have dealt with a like dozens level mass casualty bomber bomber or shooter shooter event and i would guess the numbers you know zero or maybe one or two when they were yeah. military or something like that and so and and that's that's where i was just like hey listen i don't want to charge anything i don't want to i just want to help but in this in this um, era of credentialism you know hey man we asked the sheriff's office and we asked the you know fire department and they're credentialed and you're just some dude so now we're good yeah okay man whatever well for, for uh, anyone out there that is going to you know if you're listening to the show run for your local school board there you go that's yeah. where you can start and make a decision uh if you're casualty plan does not have a means of removing vehicles out of the way it's not an effective casualty plan yep because there are going to be swarms and swarms and swarms of people that are going to descend upon the incident location and if the ambulances can't get in and out to them it's completely ineffective or you're having to hoof patients 150 yards out to the roadway main highway to get them to an ambulance instead of them being able to pull up so you better have a plan of all right, we're we're calling the local record services and get them running, start ferrying vehicles out of here and controlling uh, that access quickly, or you're going to have a problem that you have to solve downstream of that. Yep. And, yeah, and that and that 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 goes into really my my entire maps class, kind of my mental mental class. The secret sauce is I'm like people are born with a certain degree of mental agility or not, you know, it's just like a vertical leap, right? Some people are just naturally mentally agile. Some people are, are not, and that's okay, yeah. but you can develop what you got. But the secret sauce is in contingency planning, where if the first time in your life, you're ever trying to figure out what to do when somebody sticks a gun at your face while in gun in your face while you're pumping gas is while a dude sticking a gun in your face while you're pumping gas, it's not going to go well. Right. And so uh, it's, it's so literally as you're talking about, you know, that, um, the, the, you know, the Uvalde agencies, you know, the school PD and everybody else had done in December of 2021 had done some training, but like, they obviously didn't consider like, what are we going to do with a barricaded suspect? Because counter, not even counterintuitively, just ironically, a lot of this hardening stuff that we do to make it harder for shooters to get into rooms, but once they do get in a room, then what? Like, yeah. well, crap, we built, we built a bunker for them. And, uh, and so, um, you know, we had just uh, last, uh, I want to say last spring, there was a, we had wildfires, which got put out by rain, which turned into tornadoes and leveled the local school, not my local school, but um, that same day, it was Jasper High School got taken out by a tornado. They had, um, so we had the same buses for um, all the campuses, because we've got Mm -hmm. one elementary and intermediate, a junior high and a high school, and it's K through 12 for all the buses. So the buses had already picked up everybody but the high school and pulling up to the high school when the uh, order went out that, you know, hey, shelter in place, tornado warning, there's a tornado nearby. So they have to pull all these, you know, hundreds of kids from ages, you know, five to 15 or whatever off the bus, pile them into one campus. And suddenly the plan, the tornado, you know, the, the tornado drill plan that worked for every individual campus didn't work because we got this one shelter and we got enough room for about a fifth of the kids. And it was just pandemonium. And but it was a great lesson for the administrators that like you've got to think through, like as best you can, um, all the things that can go wrong. Because yeah. because it's easy, you know, like when we picture our civilian defensive gun use in our head, and we picture our gunfight in our head, it's always super straightforward, super clear cut. Mm-hmm. Um, dude's gonna run at me with a Jason mask and a chainsaw or whatever it is. Um, and and in real life, it can be a lot more. Yeah. 
ambiguous and unpredictable. Yep. You got to apply some thought to it. Yep. And how do you lock down a school when schools, the buses are dropping children off, they're picking them up, or they're all out on the playground? Yeah. And not to mention yeah. something we mentioned when we were chatting a couple minutes yeah. before we started, but yeah. like statistically speaking, you know, like the Uvalde shooting was an outlier and typically it's not somebody driving to a school. It's typically a student. So yeah. if that student's been through every one of your single active shooter drills and knows your plan and knows your response, mm -hmm. what are you going to do about that? Um, but we have to do the lockdown drills in the name of doing something. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and so, and not only that, but the number of high schoolers that I have tell me, they're like, yeah, we do these lockdown drills, but I can tell you right now, somebody's shooting up school, I'm going out the window. Yeah. And like, and they tell me that with no, and so the, the problem is then you're going to have all these teachers faced with this in the moment conundrum of mm -hmm. like kids trying to climb out the window and it's like, well, do I tackle them? Like, yeah. what do I, you know, um, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a tough thing to plan for when you've got a regimented and disciplined organization mm -hmm. and public schools are not regimented and disciplined organizations. Right. So uh, it's a tough challenge. Well, one more thing in this theme of asking the right question. Uh, emergency trauma care for the private citizen. What questions mm. should they be asking for themselves? Um, so that is that is a fantastic question. Um, so I was, yeah, my, my MOS, my job specialty, when I was in Special Forces, I was an 18 Delta Special Force Medical Sergeant. And uh, so I was a you know, Green Beret shooter, uh everything else and then you know my my other job was to take care of my attachment cross train everybody which is really important to me because if if my team bravo is doing trauma care it's probably because i'm the i'm the casualty so i made sure i had them cross trained really well and um i don't at this point i don't offer any open enrollment me medical classes but one of my big uh talking points in the in a couple of a uh, couple of private classes that i've done is again so t triple c uh, the you know, tactical combat casualty care, which came out you know early on in the GWAT, is a great thing. It's a great thing um, to to help you prioritize and figure out okay, what are you going to do? But I will say this: um, how you prioritize what you learn. And oh, by the way, if you carry a gun um, and you're you know carrying, then this goes back to the civilian self defense shooter thing, where you're probably not going to get into the sixty round gunfight. Like I mean, it's. The, the, the evidence for, for uh, high round count civilian engagements is not really there. But yeah, I don't care if somebody wants to carry fourth pair mags, but if they're carrying a gun and fourth pair mags, but not carrying any less lethal or any medical, maybe they should rethink that. Um, is that if you, if you don't have room to carry a tourniquet or a pressure dressing or a chest seal because of all your spare ammo, um, it would really suck. Uh, and those videos are out there on the internet of a guy winning his gunfight and then bleeding to death right there next to the next to the room temperature body of his assailant. Um, and so, so one, um, you do need some kind of medical plan, some kind of medical capabilities. And honestly, if you ask anybody who does roll around with a med kit, um, they'll end up using that way more often than they use a gun. You pull up on a motorcycle wreck or whatever. But the big, the big thing as far as asking the right questions is um, most of America now lives in urban or suburban areas areas. Uh, if you live in Wyoming or Alaska, or, or uh, like you mentioned, if you're an over-the-road truck driver in the middle of nowhere, it may be a little different. But for most people, um, the like the average response to EMS response time in America is like 11 minutes. Uh, and that's, that's accounting for middle of nowhere, Wyoming, skewing the stats. Uh, generally speaking, in America, you can get an ambulance to you within about 10 minutes, as long as there's not something really weird going on. Um, so where you need to prioritize your efforts is specifically on what's going to kill this person within 10 minutes. 
Uh, and so that's generally uh, exsanguination, bleeding out, uh, which means have a tourniquet, know how to use tourniquet and or uh, pressure dressings and gauze for wound packing, which you can get you can get training on. And it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Doesn't take a long time to learn uh, for basically your, your axe pockets, your armpits and your pelvis, where if you got a bleed, you can't get a tourniquet on. Um, if you can do that for trauma, um, that's going to be 90% of your battle. The other the other 10% is going to be airway management, um, which for a private citizen within Good Samaritan laws and like the kind of aid that a normal private citizen would be able to render. Um, Remember this word, recovery position, um, is that if you if you can stop the bleeding, the life-threatening bleeding on somebody and roll them over on their side or just keep both their tongue, any airway obstructions, vomit, any anything else from occluding their airway, um, their survival rate's gonna go way, way up. So there's a lot of really cool, like advanced medical classes and stuff like that. Um, but the reality is that the average citizen in America is gonna have to keep somebody alive for 10 minutes. And that's going to mean keeping the red blood cells inside the body and keeping their airway open, even attention pneumothorax. Like I, I do carry chest seals on me uh, where I can you know, slap a chest seal on somebody and keep mm -hmm. them getting a attention pneumothorax, which is a, a collapsed lung that may kill them. Even that typically takes well over 15 minutes to develop into a fatal condition. So I would still carry chest seals. They don't take up hardly any space. I know how yeah. to use them, but that's not a priority. Um, at the end of the day, the two things that'll kill somebody in less than 10 minutes is bleeding to death or um, or um, airway issues. Now that's from trauma. Um, but I will say this, I know a ton of people who like have all this swoopy medical gear they don't know how to use, or they, they know how to do like the swoopy trauma stuff where somebody gets shot. Um, I'll give you an example. I do church security, church safety classes, and I'll, as part of my, my fee, I'll roll in and, and like a lot of these times, uh, if the church already has a team, they'll, they'll present their plan to me and kind of walk me through their, their building. The number of, of churches, there'll be like some small rural Texas church that'll have like a 12 man armed security team with like long guns staged somewhere and they're ready to go. And to be clear, you should have a church security team, nothing wrong with that, but there's legitimately, you can count on one hand the number of church mass shootings in America every year, mm -hmm. but they're ready for that. But then I'll be like, hey, where's your automatic external defibrillator? Yeah. your AED and they're like what like what percentage of your congregation is over 65 well probably 75 percent of them so if you're trying to preserve the life of your congregation maybe your best bet is to have a bunch of dudes trained in CPR and uh and know how to use an AED and that'll keep people alive yeah. and so so yeah CPR and like just basic life support stuff like knowing how to do CPR and rescue breathing is a huge deal gets overlooked um and the last thing I'll say about it is um yeah, red blood cells inside the body, maintain the airway, know how to do CPR. Um, but yeah, take medical classes. And the two, the two that I recommend by far, my favorite, favorite dude is Caleb Causey from Lone Star Medics. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not trained with the Dark Angel medical guys, but I hear nothing but great things from folks who would know. So yeah, uh, Lone Star Medics, Caleb Causey and Dark Angel medical dudes. Take yourself a class. If you've taken 150 hours, 250 hours, a thousand hours of firearms training and never taken a single medical class, it might be time to shore up that hole in your game. Yep. And you mentioned John Murphy's class earlier. In John's class, you will learn bleeding control, et cetera, along with shooting, using your verbal skills to try to get out mm -hmm. of situations with some less lethal skills, everything. John Murphy's class, uh, the advanced skills and, and tactics class, is just nice. absolutely fantastic. He's actually on a range in Sumter County, Georgia right now teaching that, uh, which is where the American POW Museum. No kidding. So he'll That's be going awesome. to the museum 
uh, tomorrow. Well, after you've all heard this, he'll have already been to the museum. So nice. about that. Um, he will be at Red Hill Range up in Martin, Georgia in two weeks. So I think he's in Savannah next week. But yeah, he's traveling he's, all good. Yeah, with his with his RV, he's all over yeah. the place. Yeah, he's traveling all around the country, and that is FPFtraining.com. Chris, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you would like to discuss? Uh, no, I, you know, I think the, uh, the, the biggest thing for folks is um, as you go about this armed citizen lifestyle, um, you've got to you've got to identify your, your motivations, like what is it you want to protect and from what, um, and internalize that. Uh, you know, that for me, when it comes to finding the self-discipline to carry, you know, carry every day and, and build the skills, skills that I need and, and make sure I'm carrying my less lethal, my lethal tools, my med tools. It's, you know, I, I imagine like with the med stuff, right? Like, oh, you know, carrying the med ankle kits, pain in the butt and whatever else. Well, cool. Like, I can't imagine, um, you know, dealing with a, a carjacking in a parking lot and I smoke the dude, but then I watch my 17 year old daughter bleed out next to me because I don't have my med gear. So, so yeah. think about what it is in your life that you want to protect uh, and, and find your motivation, then start building your habits. Um, but, but yeah, think deliberately about the actual dangers you face versus the dangers that, you know, the media tells you you're going to face, uh, you know, and have, have a plan, you know, have a plan because the, if, if God forbid you're ever at your local gas station and somebody tries to carjack you or rob you, statistically speaking, that was the, that was the place you could have predicted was the most likely the, the place you go every week, every, every couple of days to fill up gas and get, get snacks. That's where you need to defend yourself. So develop a plan, have a, you know, me, I have a, uh, you know, a specific bank of pumps. I like to, to, to when I'm pumping, that's where I like to be because it gives me visibility of this, that, and the other. And then if I decide to park and go inside, because I don't park at the pump, because I'm not a jerk. Um, yeah, sorry. That's my PSA. I hate it when people just walk off from the pump 20 minutes later, come back drastic crazy. Yeah. But yeah, I've got a specific area where I park at because I know that like, if I park here, then, then strangers can only approach me from this direction and I'm less likely to get caught by surprise. Uh, and once you develop, uh, you know, kind of your rhythm for these things, it becomes real easy to apply them. Um, and so like my whole thing is develop plans for easily foreseeable contingencies so that, you know, when a, when a contingency 22 pops up, you just pull plan R off the shelf and just execute. Uh, and, and so, um, yeah, think, think real carefully, make sure you're asking yourself the right questions and ask yourself what you're missing, um, because yeah. you're, you're missing something. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, that would just be what my message spoke today. Yeah. Pre-decision making is always better than in the moment decision making. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Uh, where can people find you and how can they get in touch with you? All right. So uh, we've got citizensdefenseresearch.com. Melody has done a fantastic job getting that site up and like sexy with our bios and photos and, you know, cool guy, like photos and stuff. Uh, it's got our class schedule or our class catalog on there. So you can check us out on that website. Also hit us up on Facebook, Citizen Defense Research. Uh, same with Instagram. We're also Citizen Defense Research. I think our handle on Twitter is uh, like CDR underscore instructors, but if you just search out CDR, uh, CDR, you'll find us there. Uh, and then also we're going to be, let's see, I'm trying to think, uh, John's class in February in Bandera, Texas for uh, his uh, test of standards. I think it filled up, uh, but make sure you're checking on that because the slot opens up uh, last minute. That'll be uh, next week. Um, then we've got some classes going on in April in Ohio, uh, in Brookville, Ohio, which is just outside of Cincinnati, or no, excuse me, Brookville's Anyway, Brookville, Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio in April and May. 
Um, and uh, yeah, just check our calendar out. We're also on Eventbrite if you look us up there. And uh, we've got a great, a great cadre of instructors, uh, you know, of which I consider myself the least. So I, I consider myself fortunate to uh, to share uh, the great teammates that I have. All right. Well, Chris, thank you for your service to our country, and yes, uh, thank you for uh, helping get this this show off the ground when we even weren't trying to do that. And thank you for coming <laughs> on. <laughs> People ask me, how did you get started? Completely by accident. Yeah. Uh, well, no, man, we, we appreciate it. Thank you for what you do. Well, thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you for coming on tonight with a great show. All right. Appreciate you, man. All right. For the audience, we know that your most important asset is your time. Thank you for choosing to spend it with us. We are out. <laughs>